Please join us in welcoming to the stage Joost van Drenan. All right. That's very nice. Thank you all. Welcome for coming. I appreciate it always. It's um, always an honor to be in front of this diverse crowd for many reasons, um, but I, of course, would be remiss not to thank the organization. Um, it's a wonderful platform. I've done a talk like this a few times in a row now, and it's always a good moment to kind of check my own annual schedule, uh, kind of see where I'm at uh, in thinking about the industry, and of course, invite that conversation to all of you. Um, and so I'm gonna try to do about 55 slides in the next 45 minutes, and then we'll do some Q&A, and then afterwards, I'll be happy to you know, shoot the breeze in the, uh, in the, in the hallways. Quick word on me is, um, I like to wear many hats, uh, mostly two. I'm an entrepreneur, I've built a bunch of data companies. I'm building one now, it's a lot of fun to look into large data sets and kind of be in the frontier of what people are doing. Um, it's messy, it's hard, data sucks to work with most of the time, but so often is there some insight in there, some kind of optimization or some new phenomenon that doesn't really present or manifest anywhere else. I also teach at NYU, I teach at the business school there. Business school is a fun place. As a social scientist, I constantly find myself having to reconcile both parts of my brain in that conversation. There is, of course, how do we make money out of this thing? And then at the same time, you know, what are the social, cultural, and larger implications of what it is that we do in a creative industry like games? Um, I also have to mention that a colleague of mine, Lane Nooney, and I, we have a podcast, if you're interested in more sort of academic banter on the games industry. Um, and I like to, of course, always be in touch with people, so feel free to reach out. Um, later today, I'll do uh, a quick book sit signing uh, just a floor down from here. Um, if you just want to hang out, uh, just come by, say hi. I appreciate it. The beginning of this talk starts with a painter from a few hundred years ago, Vermeer. Um, I guess coincidentally, currently in uh, the Netherlands at the Rijksmuseum, uh, the largest uh, museum in Amsterdam, there is an exhibit that collects all of his masterpieces under one roof for the first time in centuries. Uh, I'm very excited to go in April to go see it. Um, and what makes Vermeer an interesting jump off point here is that as the master of light, he is someone that sat for the longest time in this position of being this unique creative genius, right? My fascination with the games industry really boiled down to one image would be this one to say, um, so often do we think about creative people as these lone geniuses that toil and tinker away and they sort of suffer for their art, but much of what Vermeer accomplished, he did so because of his larger network, because of the people around him, because he was competitive with other painters, and they were all looking for commissions and looking to meet sponsors and people to buy their artwork. And so over time, his image of the lone genius sort of transformed into someone who was much more part of a network of creatives. And I think that that's a really fascinating uh, transition into not just, of course, 17th century painting, but also for contemporary art and, and expression. Um, so often do we mistake a single genius for, or how you say, forget about all the people behind it and the larger economic context around it. I'll start, if you've ever seen uh, any of my talks, I usually start at the end, um, in case you fall asleep, which is likely, uh, in case you have to go somewhere else. Um, the punchline today is this, um, in spite of all the technology that we build, of course, in the end of the day, the excuse that people really have in playing when it comes to interactive immersion, when it comes to online worlds, the games and the technology are secondary to the social interaction. Right? We're there for the other humans, always. Um, you could be doing something else right now, but it is fun to be here in this room with others. Online games and the, and the phenomena of, of contemporary gameplay, they really boil down to people wanting to spend time with other people. This is a picture of Rafik Enadol, a digital visual artist. I'll explain more of this later. Um, this is a Turkish uh, you know, artist that I met by chance in a taxi ride in Munich a year ago. Brilliant, very modest uh, person, very nice guy. We spent most of our time talking about Unreal Engine and, and, and where did his wife go? He lost his wife at this conference, so we were looking for her. Just an average person, just a nice person. And he makes these brilliant installations, these teeming data visualizations that just kind of boggle the mind. And I'll talk about it in a, in a moment some more, but suffice to say here that, you know, Creativity and technology can so often make the impression of being alive, but what we're really seeing here is not so much the image itself, but it's our interpretation and our sharing it with others. So, let's talk about the games industry. Um, it is no secret, perhaps, in tech and entertainment that there's been perhaps a slight <laughs> destruction of value 
Um, you know, over the last couple of months, we've seen a softening of the overall market, not just in gaming, but in uh, a lot of other markets as well. Uh, companies like Meta, uh, all of the tech platforms, they're all having a difficult time, and the games industry equally so. So there's a massive destruction of value that happened in the wake of the pandemic, right? The pandemic lifted all the boats, everybody got richer, everybody had more time to spend time and money, and suddenly now that's starting to turn the other way. And so if you compare that to uh, the S&P 500, very simply put, in a very basic graph, over the last two, three years, performance of the major game makers in North America has really declined, right? After this surge, it's now much lower. Uh, and it has everything to do with Activision Blizzard, it has everything to do with Take-Two Interactive and Electronic Arts having a much harder time getting their stuff out to the market. Um, and so earnings are coming in softer, and people are kind of asking what's happening, right? Where does the games industry go next? Um, in the world of finance, living in New York, in Brooklyn, I spend a lot of time talking to investors and hedge fund managers and investment bankers and all uh, people of that ilk. And it's an interesting conversation because they instantly turn the dial. They go, well, if it's not going up, it's going down. It can only go in two directions. Um, and it fundamentally, it sort of exacerbates and makes things a lot worse for the games industry. Um, but it's not just, uh, of course, the people that invest in these things. It's also the people that play. When you look at the audience for these things, uh, you know, in terms of what they are willing to spend, in terms of what they are able to spend, they have to cut back on things immediately, right? And so younger audiences here in a relationship to a subscription model, for instance, they end up spending money, but they're also the first ones out of the boat, right? They can't afford to keep that going. Uh, you know, expenditure among younger consumers is much more precarious than it is for older generations. They're not as uh, affluent, they don't have as much liquidity, and so from a consumer standpoint, they have to turn the dial much more, uh, much more quickly uh, in, a, in, in moments of change. And that's a little bit different than what we saw uh, a few years ago. So as one of my sort of uh, side gigs, I'm part of an, uh, a, a venture fund focused on gaming, and so we look at the larger game space, we look at the studios, we look at the talent from large publishers that are going out on their own and built their own shops and have their own creative vision. Um, you know, there's been a lot of venture money that entered the space. And so on the one hand, you have a softening market. At the same time, there's all this pent up financial momentum behind it, right? And so it raises a lot of questions and a lot of risk, really, for a lot of these companies to say, well, where do we go next? Like, who's going to be able to push through and create something radically new? And, you know, maybe on the bottom end, when it comes to indie studios and venture capital at the, and, and one end, um, it's really, of course, on the high end, too. A few years ago, uh, we had the introduction by Google of its Stadia cloud gaming platform. Big to-do, big fanfare moment, and it was going to be the new thing. Cloud gaming was going to be the, the best thing that we'd ever seen, um, and here it was. And then it wasn't, right? So this year, Google uh, basically in January shut the whole service down. They very diligently sent me back all my money that I had spent over the last two years. In fact, I was a big fan of the service, but even a giant tech company like Google could not pull this off, right? They had a hard time figuring out how to make the distribution work, how to make the content production work. And it raises the question, well, you know, maybe a small studio can't really deal with these like, fluctuations in the market, but if Google can't do it, then what are we really talking about? And then, of course, you know, in the terms of this landscape, what you see a lot of companies do, they start leaning back on what works. Um, these are the eight largest game franchises, uh, at least in the Western market, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, that dominate and, and account for roughly 25% of annual revenues. Uh, you know, League of Legends, FIFA, Apex Legends, uh, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, you name them. They're all on the board here. These are the biggest companies, or sorry, the biggest gaming franchises today. And of course, that's the best thing for a very risk-averse industry to do. You go with what works. You go with the IP that you know is going to get an audience that will print money every year, right? When FIFA comes out in September, August, uh, every year the same people will buy that game, regardless of what's in the box, because that's just what they do. It's basically a $60 to $70 subscription, but it creates some predictability uh, in the ecosystem for these publishers. And so they lean on that, especially on harder times. You also see a longer phenomenon here in terms of Candy Crush reaching its 10th anniversary. Uh, this is a game that nobody cared about. I remember 
meeting the makers uh, 15 years ago at a, in, a, in a conference, and it was just like two of them hanging out, but it's a little sort of high chair table. And it was a moment where you realized like they were just kind of peddling their wares, they were making it work. And then a few years later, they're all billionaires and they're doing really well for themselves. And Candy Crush abides. Like this is a title and this is a phenomenon that keeps going. And 10 years in, it's still one of the top ranked and top performing mobile game, uh, mobile games out there on different platforms. I had to pull out, I couldn't play it anymore. I was a little candied out at some point, but millions of people still do. And it's something that speaks to the longer term uh, affinity that audiences have with these, what seem to be casual phenomena and casual intellectual property. Um, you know, for years we've been hearing, particularly of course, echoing the cloud gaming phenomenon, all consoles are done, they're toast. Uh, you know, the console is always dying. Every hardware cycle that comes out, there's always a moment in the industry where we hear about what I call the greatly exaggerated death of the console. Um, it's not that way, it never is. And particularly if you look at Nintendo, Yes, the Wii U was a terrible device that nobody really wanted. It sold 13 million copies, units over its life cycle. Uh, the Switch has outsold that now 10 to 1, uh, and that's a real big success, right? The only one that's more successful is the DS for Nintendo. It really puts it at a high level. In a cycle where people don't believe in console, in a cycle where they always feel like the next thing is gonna be bigger and better. People really stick to what they like. It raises some questions too. So let's say you are a studio that makes a colorful birdie game where you knock over some piggies and some structures. Um, you know, how do you get out of that momentum of having one cycle, one IP that breaks everything, right? This dependency on capturing lightning in a bottle one time is of course, uh, you know, you should be so lucky. At the same time, your real trick is of course to do it twice or more. Um, it raises some fundamental questions, that especially if you haven't been able to grow the pie as much as you wanted to. It raises the question when other companies are still flush with cash trying to buy you out. Um, a couple of months ago, Angry Birds maker Rovio got an offer from Playtica, a large casino style operator um, that wanted to buy it out. Of course, Rovio now has to make a few decisions, one of them pertaining to the fact that what do you do if you're a casual, sort of kid-focused game maker and now suddenly a casino maker wants to buy you out. Is that the place, is that the landlord that you want to live in? In, in, in whose building you want to live, yes or no, right? And so it's starting to shift the conversation, not so much about what makes economic sense, but creatively and otherwise, like is that really where you want to be? And if that doesn't really push the barrier far enough for you, uh, most recently we saw the release by Warner Brothers and Avalanche Studios of a game called Harry Potter Hogwarts Legacy. And it's an interesting phenomenon because I've never really read any of the books, so don't call me out on this, but um, the fundamental or the short version of all this is that as the game started to be released and as we were coming up on the, on the due date, a lot of people found a lot of issue with the fact that J.K. Rowling, the original author of the books, had made some very hurtful comments in the past uh, year or two with regards to uh, you know, just basic human rights as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so people were a little bit up in arms saying, like my students in particular, on the one hand, I want to buy it and play it, but I also don't agree with any of these politics, so what do I do? It's always uh, a bit of a uh, moment for me to realize like billionaires apparently need entire newspaper articles defending them. I wasn't aware of this, um, but so New York Times took to it uh, to do that. Um, and unfortunately, perhaps because of the controversy, we still saw, it still sold a lot of copies, right? If you look in the history of the games industry, particularly around the IP of Harry Potter, we see that the legacy game sold more copies than any of the other ever released. So it raises a question for me too, saying like, okay, where are we with the moral compass when it comes to all of this consumer spending? And so the year for me, as it is uh, since, say, the last time we were all together in this room, in many ways, a, a challenge with regards to the economics, but also sort of like, what do we want to do as an industry? Like, where do we want to be? Um, the suffering continues always, uh, as you can imagine. Um, in a game like Elden Ring, beautiful game, incredibly difficult, and it seems only sort of on point that that is one of the top seller games with 20 million copies in a period in the games industry when things are tougher, harder, but also more beautiful in a sense, right? The ability to make these things is only increasing ever, um, but then at the same time, things seem to also be much, much harder. And that's, I think, uh, as sort of the key theme for this year for me is that bigger means different, 
right? As an ecosystem expands, as more companies enter into the space, it's not the same thing as it used to be. Um, it used to be in the sort of romanticized notion from 20 years ago, where we'd have Nintendo making a Zelda game every once in a while, and then maybe PlayStation had a few games, and Microsoft tried a few things, and then there were some publishers, and all was well, and we were all sort of playing this on our downtime. The games industry has grown dramatically to become a $200 billion business, and all of a sudden you have these large mega platforms. If you look at this particular graph, uh, most of the top companies in the top 10 are platform holders, not publishers. And there's been this massive shift of industry power away from the publishers towards the platform holders. Um, of course, that's reason for concern, right? Do we want that level of consolidation of power, this kind of monopolizing presence for these large platforms? When earlier in the year, um, Microsoft offered and proposed to acquire Activision Blizzard for $70 billion, um, immediately a bunch of red flags went up. A lot of antitrust regulators around the world, particularly the uh, Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, the FTC here in the US, and of course the EU um, Commission, they were all kind of worried about how this is going to play out. What does it mean for Microsoft to own the largest North American game publisher? Right? Blizzard, or Activision Blizzard makes about 10 to 11 billion dollars a year, uh, valued at 70 billion for these transactions. That's a really good premium on top of its existing share price. It, currently trades at around 65 bucks, and they're offering to sell it for 95. You know, that's a huge premium. At the same time, uh, it has a lot of these service games, World of Warcraft, it has Call of Duty, it has Candy Crush, so it's very popular, it has a lot of success. In fact, it was the only game publisher during fourth quarter uh, earnings that actually showed a profit because of the success of Modern Warfare 2, which is this beautiful, top-tiered shooter game, and also sits, which also sits at the nexus of the problem here. But we have the regulators, and then we have Microsoft, and also Sony heavily defending its position, saying, this is not right. With Microsoft owning all of this, it's going to be problematic. Um, as a researcher, as an analyst, as an investor, I'm excited about these moments. First and foremost, because whenever large companies start fighting, a lot of useful information comes out. <laughs> <laughs> If you've ever, uh, if, you've, if you followed Apple versus Epic Games about the whole Fortnite scandal about how you couldn't have alternative payment methods inside of the mobile version of Fortnite, uh, there was just this, you know, this cornucopia of information that came out. Beautiful. I'm sitting there, I'm just eating that up all day long. And the same thing is happening here. So now we have like these just oceans of information coming out of Microsoft, of Sony, of the CMA, and all these institutions doing their own research saying, well, here's what we think the universe really looks like. Here's what we believe is the size of the market, this is the impact of everything, and so on. So it's actually kind of a boon for anybody interested in the industry. Um, but it also teaches, of course, uh, that the people that make these decisions may not always have the right scope in their minds, right? They tend to have a much more narrow horizon or a narrow perspective to evaluate and judge these issues than perhaps uh, might actually be the case. Um, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but I'm in favor of the acquisition, and I believe that it will go through. Um, for all these reasons, I'm happy to get into afterwards, but suffice to say that in many ways, yes, the largest game companies have gotten bigger. Right? If you look at the simple graph, uh, it's gone up 6x in total size. The orange is the 10 largest game companies. Uh, the single largest one, Tencent, $33 billion. Uh, yes, it's bigger than it was before, of course. Uh, the, the big fish are bigger now than they are, were before. But so is the pond, right? Uh, the pond has grown in tremendous size, not just because we used to only have console gaming, but we now also have hardware and accessories as a viable model. We also have platform operators. Apple wasn't there really 10 years ago. Not until they allowed free-to-play monetization in 2009 did Apple play a meaningful role in gaming. Google, same thing. Uh, and then, of course, there's live streaming and esports. Those are categories that, that didn't exist even a few years ago, and they generate around $7 billion a year. Is that meaningful in the context of $260-plus? Maybe, um, but it's, at least it's there, right? The, the pond as a, as, as a whole has uh, increased in size as well. More so, there's also new fish. Right? The games industry, the structure and the market landscape of the games industry has also allowed more companies to have a say in it. Right? If you're worth a billion dollars in revenue a year, you kind of have a seat at the table. And so 
you know, how many do we have? Well, we have 52 compared to 17 only a decade ago. These large, powerful companies, not all from the same continent, not all from the same country, um, it changes the balance in the world, right? It changes how decisions get made. It changes the options game makers have, creatives have, studios have, platforms have, because they now have to deal with more competitive parties. And there's new fish uh, in general, uh, you know, in the sense that you didn't know about probably. This is, uh, a <laughs> this is my secret. I've been playing this one a lot instead of Candy Crush. I'm so sorry to admit this. <laughs> now that I see it, of course, of course it's in there. Um, Homescapes is a game made by Playrix, which is from, you know, it's a Polish game company. Makes a billion and a half a year, right? Most people have never heard of this. It's a massive success, and they make this game where you basically just swap three things, make a bunch of combinations, get a bunch of coins, and then upgrade your parents' old dilapidated home, because otherwise they're going to sell it, and you're just, <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, we'll get into it some other time. But suffice to say, it's a really enjoyable game if you're, you know, just kind of trying to fall asleep a little earlier tonight. Uh, Homescapes makes so much money, so compared to larger, perhaps more uh, you know, top-of-mind franchises like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Like, it keeps up with those big dogs. And then finally, of course, in addition to all this, there's also new pawns, right? Uh, the ones that dominate one category don't necessarily have any say in others. Um, you know, one of the big problems that has been pointed out repeatedly over the last few years is that there's really only two mobile game platforms. It's Google and Apple and nothing else. Uh, in uh, Asia, that varies a little bit more, but mostly it's those two. And there's no way to really get in there, right? Repeatedly have antitrust regulators uh, propose, like, we need to figure out how to break this up. We need to get in there. Uh, you know, musical, uh, uh, music companies and artists in other categories are unhappy with the App Store fee, with the, with the Apple tax. So what do you do, right? So, and there's uh, a lot to say for just lack of competition in some categories. But overall, in the games industry, we're not looking strictly at one company running the show. There's multiple different ponds here, right? There's different areas. PC gaming, which was all but dead 20 years ago. Console had won. PC gaming had contributed to nothing. Uh, and it was mostly uh, a digital play at the time. It's grown into a $40 billion business, right? League of Legends and Steam in general as a digital distribution platform, launching 10,000 new titles every year. Those are very, very serious numbers for what used to be a dead category. And so, you know, when I said earlier it's interesting to watch these large-scale fights because you learn a lot of data, there's also a lot of drama. Like, suddenly it matters, right? So the $70 billion acquisition is one of the largest, it is the largest acquisition for Microsoft in its history. But it also redefines the category boundaries in the sense that Sony doesn't really like this, right? Sony allegedly has said that they were not so much, uh, uh, you know, trying to get a deal around Call of Duty, which is the big ticket. Uh, that's the biggest shooter in the context. And without it, if there's no cool shooters in your platform, you arguably or historically will have fewer users to buy the device. And that's bad for business. We don't want that, says Sony. And so therefore, Microsoft should not be allowed to do it. But it goes a little further. Right? Apparently, there's all these like grown men flying around in corporate jets to meet each other and have absolutely no progress in their negotiations. And it's a weird moment, and it's sort of also like kind of fun to watch with a bag of popcorn how they're trying to do this, figure this out. Right? We should really be making games. Right? We should really be focusing on how people making games can get paid and how consumers can get access to more content, not corporate profits and how they're cut and sliced the best and optimal way. And if you ask users themselves, look, if I have no PlayStation and Call of Duty is not available, I'm not necessarily jumping over, right? So if I already own it, sure, I'll play those, but I'm not buying future releases. Only a third of people will do that. And so in other words, the conversion, the anxiety that, that Sony seems to have around this seems to be a little bit overblown in terms of what consumers say. They just want to have a good time. Players just want to play games. They don't really care about who owns it or if it's necessary to have the device. They've kind of moved on from that very strict idea that you have to be locked into a particular hardware ecosystem, and they'll be happy to accommodate whatever else is out there. They just want to have a pleasant time with their friends, play the games, and, and, and so on. They don't really want to deal with that sort of macroeconomic nonsense. At the same time, um, you see the transition right in front of you. Um, if you remember the industry, used to also have a company called Sega making hardware. That company's gone out, and instead it's making software only. Right? The idea that as a hardware manufacturer you stay in that business and want to continue to do so 
for the sake of just you know, selling boxes and hope to sell a few games. On top of it, that's changed dramatically. Apple, Google, and all these other companies are all selling services now. And so for Sony, what really has become uh, you know, over the last few years, as a media company now, it's a very different proposition. Sony is gonna stop pursuing the next Walkman. And really what it's trying to get to is like, how do we become the sort of you know, media empire that we truly are? We have music, we have film, and we have games. And they're really, really good at this. Why not focus on that instead? So now with the change of the guard in the C-suite, uh, all of a sudden you see this transition where people are investing and they start acquiring more content-heavy and more IP-based uh, uh, purchases. They're, they're really making an effort to spend more time there, and you can see it in their profit margins. All of a sudden, uh, you know, that's shifting to about 60% uh, anticipated in 2026, uh, as opposed to their hardware and insurance businesses. So in other words, you know, if Sony already owns a lot of these things in the larger context, why not keep going, right? Why bother with the boundaries of what falls in and outside of the console world, and instead just go after the content? And the overall industry, I feel, and increasingly the data backs this up, starts to embrace this too, right? And we see here in sort of short order a few different phenomena. I live in uh, Clinton Hill in Brooklyn, home of Biggie Smalls, uh, and of course, recently they had a VR, a VR show but they had him driving around in the neighborhood and they had these real life performers with a virtualized biggie, which, you know, of course you could say that's so cool at the same time, that's yeah, kind of a money grab, but whatever your opinion is, it's interesting that they're exploring from the music industry these new ways of content creation, content distribution, and how to connect people to the songs that they like and the things that are meaningful to them. Uh, perhaps on a less uh, or a more frivolous note, we have Doja Cat, who's a big fan of Power Wash Simulator. And the whole point of the game is just to power wash dirty vans and garden furniture. And that's what she does on Twitch for hours on end, and fans love it, right? And it's an interesting way to think about, you know, how my parents connected to their favorite musical artist, and here is Doja Cat, you know, power washing my truck. Um, of course, on mobile, that's not left out here as well. Season of Aurora, uh, Journey, Children of Light is an interesting game um, because it has a concert inside of the mobile game itself. And it's this sort of ephemeral, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, interesting fantasy feel to the musical performances. It attracts millions of people, right? Uh, 1.6 million people watch the concert live, and it's an interesting idea to have this online mobile space where then you start hosting events. Uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, ended up selling uh, a lot of copies for a singer called Freddie Dredd, this sort of hardcore rapper, um, because a lot of kids on TikTok were using Freddie Dredd's music in combination with little clips of Call of Duty, particular Ghost, one of the main characters, to just kind of show some cool stuff, and it just really took off, and it, triple, uh, it tripled sales of the, of the record uh, over the course of a week. And if that's a little too close to home, uh, then there's also Blackpink, in a game called PUBG Mobile. PUBG Mobile is really the biggest title out there uh, in China. And of course, Blackpink is a fantastically famous uh, you know, girl band. And it ends up being this weird you know, coalescence of, on the one hand, this super talent in this super popular game, uh, driving not just attention and eyeballs, but they're also selling cosmetic items. Right? And so all of a sudden, these things become less about marketing and more about revenue. Users love it, they get a front row seat, they get to have an experience that they haven't had anywhere else, and everybody benefits from this, right? So that exploration, after a few years of it being mostly on the marketing side, is starting to materialize into monetization. And if that's all a little far from home, uh, maybe you can just watch some TV. They just finished uh, The Last of Us, uh, the season one finale on, uh, on Sunday. Uh, I watched it, of course, because that's my job, and also what I like. Uh, you see here uh, some numbers that are interesting. Uh, the 11.6 uh, was uh, during the Super Bowl. Uh, so they broadcasted two days earlier, of course. But in spite of that, uh, you know, it still drew a huge crowd. 8.2 in spite of the Oscars being on at the other channel. Um, and so these are not just high numbers in and of their own right. The only thing that is bigger was Game of Thrones, right? House of Dragons was the only other franchise in the HBO catalog that performed better on premiere night uh, viewership. So maybe there's something to it. 
Some other good news that I find, and this is a larger conversation I have with my students and with people out there as an investor and, and as someone looking at the industry. Uh, you know, for a long time, the games industry has been sort of accused of being mostly focused on men, a very narrow demographic, and you know, to mitigate risk, really try to keep as close to this one different, uh, this one specific audience to kind of make life easy for themselves, as opposed to the entire human race, right? Um, and there were some few, uh, there was a few talks here today and yesterday uh, talking about uh, you know, representing black gamers in gaming, what a phenomenon that would be, right? And how that industry has been really uh, falling short in doing so. At the same time, uh, you know, who actually makes the games matters in that context too. Uh, you can't really expect uh, a bunch of 30-year-old white guys to make something that is more inclusive, right? It's just not part of their life world. In strict academic theory, it's very hard to share subjectivity uh, from an experience that you haven't lived yourself, right? And so making that possible and hiring people and infusing talent into your creative organization, that's kind of where key uh, changes will come from. Do we have some evidence? Well, a little bit, right? So the games industry has changed over the last few years somewhat. And I pointed out here, not to say that it's better than music, but to say, you know, we have to compare it against some kind of benchmark. So the GDC State of Industry is a report that comes out uh, in anticipation of the, of the annual conference there. Actually, I'll be there next week. Um, and what it does is ask a few thousand people making games a bunch of census-type question, right? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? What's your company like? How many people work there? And on the issue of gender, you see then over time a slow increase from 18 to 23% when it comes to female, uh, female-identifying people working in the games industry on the development side. So this is not the consumer side. This is the people making actual games, right? The people that make creative decisions. Uh, the music industry is much less so. Sure, on the talent side, people on stage, but behind the scenes, still only 4%. And the film industry is roughly on par with 25 and so I feel like this is minimal progress, but at least it's something to kind of feel a little bit more hopeful about. And you see this then represented also in uh, the venture side where uh, companies like Fine Games, a German company uh, that I, uh, from a former student, uh, uh, you know, they get this recognition of doing something a little bit different. There's uh, Later Daters, a, a, a game that basically talks about uh, dating, but in the context of being older. Like, what do older people do when they date? I don't know. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it would be very awkward with my wife. But, but then at the same time, it's like, you know, that, those are stories that don't often get told, and they perhaps deserve, an, you know, an audience as well. Um, and so at the same time, while we see some growth and progress in one category, we see a little bit of decline of rurals, right? So esports a year ago, oh my goodness, was the biggest thing ever. FaZe uh, Clan was going to go public at a valuation of a billion dollars, had all this stuff going on, um, and that really never delivered on anything. Um, we could talk about that for a while, uh, as to why that happened, but it really comes down to uh, the games industry and the audience that goes with it. There's only so much you can do with competitive gaming as a content category, right? Perhaps somewhat unfortunate, but here we are. Um, if you look at uh, Twitch data, if you look at the streaming volume on live streaming platforms, uh, you'll notice that even the most competitive esports teams have started to switch over to non-esports type content just to kind of placate and reach a larger audience, get more advertising into their pipeline and make some money because it's very, very hard to build a revenue model around this model. Um, and so you see then, of course, for the publicly traded ones, um, while the large publishers did poorly, the esports ones kind of shot up and then just cratered. And so this is a massive decline in the esports category, which is sad, perhaps. At the same time, you know, that's where we're at, that this is the reality of that industry right now. And so you see, for instance, a year-over-year decline for some of these companies of like two-thirds of their total value, right? They lose so much money on this. And it was really the promise for a long time. We were going to see competitions. We're going to see tournaments. And there's a larger question here, which we'll get to in a second, but just from a fundamental model, you have to ask the question, like, what killed esports? Like, what happened to it when a few years ago we were looking at this, and the industry changed, and it was going to be this big thing, and all of a sudden the publishers got really grabby, or maybe they didn't quite understand it, or maybe it was the advertisers, they were too hesitant. You know, do these large brands uh, really have to figure out 
you know, how to get in front of all these audiences, and why is that so difficult for them to understand? And so you end up with, uh, of course, a bunch of companies in peril. Uh, financially, things are not going so well, and all of a sudden, there's a buyer. Um, I'll be happy to explain this in more detail, of course, but suffice to say that the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia, particularly its uh, division Savvy Gaming, has been making some really interesting purchases over the last year and a half, and most notably bought up the largest three non-publisher esports organizations, now creating a monopoly around the hub of esports in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. And it's an interesting phenomenon because um, they're trying to stomp that out of the ground, quite literally. At the same time, what does that mean culturally? Where does that leave us as an industry? And what does it mean for audiences, right? Does it make it okay, right? Is it, and, and it's a fair question, um, the same head of state that ordered the killing of a journalist, um, but he's also a, a cool gamer guy. Like, I don't know how to rhyme those things so much, but it raises questions about the industry with regards to where we are, what's our cultural moment, and what do we want it to be? And so, to make sense of things, perhaps like many of you, I usually forfeit my own opinions and just look at my kids. Right? What do they want to do? Um, I watch my 10-year-old play Roblox with his friends, he enjoys that so much. Okay, so what's out there? What does he do? What's that behavior like? And for me, this is really the biggest one, sort of the defining slide in all of this. Kids, they like to play with other kids. They just want to play online. They're not there for like the high tech or for the fancy graphics or the fast moving, blistering spectacle that you may offer them. They're there for other people, right? I'm more of that older category. I like solo campaigns. I like to play alone. I have a wife and children. I don't want to also be humiliated online in Call of Duty. <laughs> I am way too busy for this. But kids, they love that. They love just goofing off in Roblox, right? That for them is a very different phenomenon. And so this is now a generation that starts to grow up online. They socialize online in a way that we haven't seen before. And that bifurcation in consumer preferences, I think, is key in what, the, what will be the future of gaming. Um, so the model that lies behind all this uh, when we look at, for instance, Roblox, and this is, uh, was initially sort of counterintuitive for me personally. On the one hand, you would say, well, online games, they benefit from network effects, right? Because there's lots of people and there's lots of other people to talk to and to play with, and it's really the size of the network, the size of the audience within one game that drives everything. And that, to a large degree, is the case for, say, League of Legends, Magic the Gathering, all these sort of multiplayer-style games. When you look at Roblox, and what's, I think, a new thing is the fact that it's not really about the size of the audience. It's about how often they're incentivized, the kind of things that you can do, what are the experiences being offered. And as you engage people, as you pull them in constantly with these things to do, like events, cool items, something fun with their friends, some excuse to hang out, that's what drives adoption, that's what drives retention, and ultimately, of course, monetization. And so it's no surprise then that games like Fortnite are really big on digital items. So digital collectibles, digital goods, things that you can purchase and wear and show off to your friends, that's where it's at. That's what you want to do, right? In fact, if you add it all up, Fortnite sells more digital apparel than most of the major fashion brands. My, uh, my friend and colleague, Matt Ball, he came up with this. I updated it a little bit. But you see here, close to $6 billion, more than J. Crew, Diesel, Prada, Hugo Boss. Um, and I find that an interesting phenomenon, right? Here's people wanting to express themselves in a digital setting in the same way that we do in a physical setting. They're just using real money to do it. Reddit uh, launched a digital collectible avatar program. Uh, as of January, they sold about 8 million of these to a total value of 12 million bucks to about 5 million users. And suddenly people care a lot about their little profile pic, right? Is, this some, is that a business? Is this like one wonky moment? Is that a new ecosystem? No, not yet, maybe, we'll see. But it's interesting to me that I feel so disconnected from the fact that you know, I may never wanna do this, but five million people do, right? And so all of a sudden, from a creative standpoint, from an investment standpoint, and from just a larger perspective in the industry, as things get bigger, that maybe they also start to mean something different to larger audiences and everybody else. And so Bob Iger, who retired from Disney, then kind of, I guess, took a year or two off and then unretired himself 
to take back control, he is one of those people uh, that sees a future here saying like, well, just because it's digital doesn't mean it's not meaningful, right? In fact, it's close to be the opposite. And so, you know, if I had to make a prediction around this, I expect Disney to make a purchase, an acquisition in the space where they buy some kind of game company. Probably, I don't think it's gonna be Roblox, but some kind of, maybe some crypto thing, but something with digital goods and assets uh, to kind of prove out the case and also rhyme it with their theme parks, right? Um, I'm not saying that I'm gonna be spending Mickey Mouse coins to buy groceries anytime soon, but you might, right? And if Bob, if Bob wills it. It leads me, ultimately then, you know, if we start to move into these new forms of expression, if we are figuring out how to deal with this, of course, it also puts the emphasis on the workers, right? And so, at the same time, as we've seen this tremendous increase and then later decline in the industry, or softening, I should say, um, you also see a shift in how people regard labor. Um, this is the first year, really, that we've started to see the formation of labor unions in gaming, which is a huge, huge step forward, right? You have it in other categories, you have it in other industries, but not in gaming so much. It's finally starting to emerge. It unfortunately also emerges at the same time that now we have artificial intelligence to come take those jobs away. I don't know, right? And so there's an interesting intersection here of human labor and, I guess, robot labor or artificial intelligence. And I'm still wrapping my head around much of this because so much of it moves so quickly. And so uh, perhaps that's the same for you. Um, but when it comes to the games industry, artificial intelligence has been around for well over 15 years. Right? My colleagues at NYU, uh, particularly Julian Tegelius, uh, he assures me that uh, 15 years ago, people were already looking into this. Here's one example. Um, Activision Blizzard filed for a patent uh, where you have dynamic changes in music depending on what's happening in the game. That's something that's probably familiar to many of you. As you play certain games, the intensity of the music goes up, it reaches a crescendo, it sort of challenges you more. Um, and so the algorithm itself kind of feeds back on the input that you provided as a, as a user in playing the game. Um, of course, outsourcing labor or outsourcing content creation has always been part of that as well the back end of this, right? Where you say, well, you know, how do I do this? Uh, games like Doom, um, these Wolfenstein-style games, these first-person shooter games in the late 90s, they relied for their content production really on having people out there making it for them, right? User-generated content, but just manual. It was a community of people that would do this, and they would share that with everybody else. And that was the license. Under a shareware license, you could do all these things where all of a sudden, the game itself now had hundreds, if not thousands, of levels for you to play. Um, very quickly after that, it moved into a procedural generation um, where games become basically with a bunch of factors installed, now capable of generating environments, generating trees, enemies, and storylines just for you in this particular moment. Right? And there's ample games and simulators that you could probably think of, but it helps a great deal in building these massive, immersive, uh, in, I say, expansive and immersive environments. Um, this is a simple example. You know, here we have somebody giving a few cues to an AI and saying, hey, generate for me a little like town square in a landscape. Right? And it's a nice little game. This is meant for more of a tabletop setting, but you can see immediately, well, this is actually much easier than me having to hand draw this. And that's, of course, the crux of a lot of investment capital and everybody else saying, well, we can make things at vaster scale much quicker much cheaper, right? A large studio might have all this talent around, but small creative outfits, they might not have all this. And so now they can, with a few prompts, generate a few different images, maybe a little walkthrough demo, and they can use that in a pitch deck. They can use that in, in getting a new customer or an investor. And that's where a lot of uh, the large VCs now focus their attention. How can we generate as much content as, as possible, as quickly as possible? Um, I'm not a huge fan of that just yet. Um, and I said this for a simple reason, in that it seems a little too short in deterrence. Creating content always is going to require humans, in my mind, right? A robot generating games played by another robot seems a little dystopian and empty. Um, but I do see the value, of course, in that we now make um, things more accessible. Like every other 16-year-old boy back in the day, I wanted to play the guitar because everybody else did, and of course, you know, making games is now part of that too. 
Uh, a lot of people, they express themselves on YouTube making films. They go on Twitch and live streaming. They have a lot to say, and they find new tools to say it with. Uh, I believe that AI will be that augmentation for a lot of people where they can manifest their own environments, where they can create their own experiences. And that is exactly at the center of games like Roblox. This is an example of that, where you can add with simple prompts, basically a car that swerves around that you can drive, that creates the environment and the experience for you. And so then the question around AI for me personally is really, okay, but aren't we just seeing only happy things, right? Are we being too optimistic about this? And you know, I'm not sure if we're there quite yet that we figured this out. Um, and I say this for a very simple reason, is that so often do we get all this excitement, uh, the narrative is driven by large tech firms and by venture capitalists that say, oh, it's the end, it's the most amazing thing. I think, well, okay, but you put garbage in, you get garbage out. You know, if you start um, thinking about representation, if you start thinking about what actually goes into the data sets that you use to train and the learning data that you use for this, you know, you end up so often with all these shortcomings that are totally invisible until you see the actual output. But what goes in also comes out. Is that the innovation? Um, and so my thought on this is that it might be an accelerant for the creative side, but it's gonna be mostly on the back end initially. Game companies have shifted from a product-based business to a live service commodity. There's lots of free-to-play online games. There's no shortage of mobile games. Uh, Steam, like I said, publishes 10,000 titles a year. Um, these are huge amounts of titles for you to never play because it's too much. Um, and so at the same time, most of what really attracts and what audiences really like is online multiplayer games, right? I showed you the slide. That model implies that you also have customer support. That model implies that you also maintain a huge life services backend. You're also dealing with constant content production. So as you start adding all these things up where you have games as a service, you have large events taking place inside of your multiplayer game, and you have to host all these people, AI will most likely be used to just navigate simple stuff. Are people using bad words as name tags? Are people misbehaving? What's the level of toxicity in these online conversations? That's where AI, I think, can really shine. Not so much the front end, but really in the back end, make these environments more accessible and much, much more meaningful to people. And so, as I said at the beginning, my mind usually goes towards like, well, what's the obvious thing to not do, right? And so, as I walk into the MoMA to look at this piece, it's called um, Unsupervised. It's just this massive, I mean, it's huge. And it moves and it just rolls around. It's basically like looking at a box in which they somehow captured the ocean, it changes colors, and it's a fascinating phenomenon. Your mind will always try to make sense of this because it doesn't really make sense. And so my thought to leave you with then is a very simple one. At the end of the day, when we look at these games and we look at this, uh, you know, this increase and this acceleration of content production, um, I feel that the biggest thing and the hardest thing would be for us to make sense of this, right? We're moving away from very static content. We're moving away from a very objective set of what constitutes our experience. Sure, we can watch a show. Sure, we can watch a movie. We can listen to a piece of music. Those are sort of static objects in experience. But as we enter into this digital space, whatever that means, we end up with such an overwhelming amount of things to make sense of that the only way to do that is to just make decisions in and of our own rights, right? So suddenly we shift away from an objectivity and an object-focused sense of experiencing culture to something that's much, much more subjective. And so rather than working with a computer and dealing with the robotics of this, my preference will always go out, go out to dealing with the people involved. Um, we play because other people are in the games. My name is Joost. Thank you for your time. Uh, we have about 10 minutes for some questions for those of you who want to stick around. Um, I'm always happy to do that. Uh, don't be shy. Uh, you have to use the Go app uh, through South by Southwest. Thank you. Okay.
I'll read them off here for those of you who are interested. Let's start with Atta Aka. When do you think the VR gaming experiences will be one of the new pawns? Will there be games like Ready Player One, Sword or, or Sword Art Online dominating the space? Um, it's an interesting question because both um, Meta has, uh, well, Meta has started laying off people uh, in general, which is a sad thing, but they have also taken their foot off the gas when it comes to VR. Um, Sony, while they denied it, uh, was uh, accused of rolling back its own estimates for its PSVR 2. Um, I don't know if there's any truth to that statement, but there seems to be uh, a general skepticism in the industry for VR becoming the new thing, right? Its cousin, AR, is similar to it in that it's a um, you know, type of technology that hasn't really matured, hasn't really led up to become this amazing thing just yet. And it ends up being sort of early stage in perpetuity. So will there be games like it in a dedicated way where maybe if the technology improves radically and the content becomes that much more compelling? Yes. But, you know, adoption for kids, for, you know, people that want to spend time with others, I don't know if you need all that, right? They like things that aren't necessarily high-tech. I think it's kind of overshooting its goal. So I continue to be a skeptic when it comes to VR. I like the idea. I just wish it was much, much better. Okay, let's see. Why we see work-focused game companies trying to emulate metaverses and don't see, oh, sorry, uh, and don't see game companies which already have metaverses reaching work-focused audiences. You know, again, so this is similar to VR for me where on the one hand you have game companies, uh, of course very capable of constituting all these virtual environments. On the other hand you have, you know, for-profit organizations, to put it simply, um, you know, why would you go to the Procter & Gamble metaverse um, to do what exactly? You know, is this just a shittier version of Zoom where now I also have to dress? Um, you know, I have to wear, wear pants, otherwise I get called out. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, from an organizational and sort of historical perspective, often, you know, you have some C-suite that decides on new technology and then the poor slobs in the bottom of the organization have to actually use it. Uh, if you've ever worked for a large corporation, I'm sure there's your favorite piece of software that you hate so much because it was just a contract that they make and now it sort of flushes its way down to the people you, doing the work. I think metaverses can be the same where while they might have some productive meaning to it and create some value for everybody, at the same time, uh, you know, so often is it more a political decision than really solving any problems. So, you know, game companies are probably... It's a good question for Matt Balt in that sense. But so game companies, I think, lead the way. I think if we're going through the trouble of going into these worlds, then you got to give me something better to do than like, you know, figuring out, fixing out a P&L statement or something like that. Like that doesn't seem exciting enough. It doesn't warrant technology. In 2023, should we expect more niche titles with smaller budgets to emerge or will mainstream titles reinforce their current dominant position? Uh, Answer is the last part, right? As I showed, the large titles, the large franchises uh, give you the least amount of risk. And we're also at the second half of the hardware cycle, meaning the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X and S have been out for a few years. So the people that are now jumping into the console pool, they're much more shy and risk-averse kind of audiences. They don't really want to play something new that is unproven. They want to get the big franchises. They will want to buy Call of Duty. They want to get Grand Theft Auto uh, and sort of like your you know, low-hanging fruit in that sense. Also, titles have gone up to $70 almost across the industry now. They used to be 60 for a while. All of a sudden, they're 70 for what I believe is no other reason than to just improve margins. It has nothing to do with the development so much, costing that much more. Um, and so, you know, if I'm taking all that financial risk as an end user, as a consumer, um, I'm going to go with I, something that I know will work. And consequently, those, those major franchises will disproportionately claim all the revenue. While some games are great, other categories of games serve no good purpose. How can we, how should we regulate the industry? Let me think of that one. Mess up your dopamine system. Okay, so this is a, this is a good dystopian question. I appreciate that. Um, I think it's, it starts with holding accountable the people that make them, right? In the same way, 
that things need to be sourced properly in other categories where, you know, what went into the sausage is a very normal question in many other industries, um, you end up having to ask the same thing with game makers, right? Um, I ne don't necessarily want to, you know, pigeonhole them here, but Electronic Arts was really called out when it came to loot boxes. Uh, they went a little hard when it came to what they call surprise mechanics, uh, surprise monetization and comparing basically what they sold were card packs for FIFA as, as kinder eggs, like a child surprise wrapped in chocolate. Um, you know, none of that is really uh, you know, a fair comparison. And you can kind of see through the conversation and kind of what really drives them, like they kind of say the thing you're not supposed to say out loud. Um, and so I think it's actually a good idea to start having a little bit more of a say in this, to have some regulatory standards. I had the president of the ESRB, which does the ratings um, in North America, Patricia Vance, in my class uh, a few semesters ago, like, how do you deal with this? And it's really just a lack of willingness of the industry to want to talk about this. Uh, but as they rise to a higher level of uh, visibility and scrutiny uh, more culturally, right, 10, 20 years ago, gaming was more of a fringe phenomenon. Now it's much more mainstream. Um, it's a great time to kind of look uh, in, you know, in the mirror and see what else you could be changing. It's not just on the front end with consumers, I think also very much with how they treat their workers. Um, you know, we talk about the labor movement, we talk about workplace toxicity, we talk about a lot of lawsuits running the gamut from Ubisoft to Riot to Activision Blizzard. Maybe it's time to straighten that out too, not just worry about the front end and how the games come out and how aggressive they monetize, also how we treat people that actually make the games. Why did Stadia fail? Um, is cloud-based gaming just a niche that has limited use cases? Thank you, Matthew. I, uh, I like that one because I can't stop talking about Stadia. Stadia, of course, as I mentioned, is, was Google's cloud solution. Um, and it failed, I think, for two reasons. But one of them was, in the metaphor I used at the time, if you are trying to get people to come to your restaurant, um, you can't say, we have the best tables and chairs. You can't say we have the nicest knives and fork. You have to tell me what's on the menu. Who's cooking? What are they cooking? Why? What can I expect from a culinary perspective? And so Stadia at the time, uh, although Microsoft caught up eventually, had by far the superior technology. They were the first mover, and they had really good, in North America at least, bandwidth. Right? Their ability to create seamless experiences on any kind of crappy device that I tried it worked perfectly and beautifully. Um, you know, but they never had a personality around it. The games that they offered were pretty mediocre. I had to buy them all separately. So the monetization model was pretty aggressive. And it ends up being sort of like, well, I'm going to this ritzy place to get this fancy meal, but all I'm getting is some prepackaged food, right? There was no real personality behind it. Uh, and then once uh, you, know, you realize that, of course, rolling out data centers globally to really get the addressable audience to make sense of this, that's a tough thing to do. That's an expensive thing to do. Uh, and then senior leadership started to leave, right? Uh, both uh, the main icons of the industry, the legends that drove Stadia's initial adoption and mo movement, they left. And so you have to kind of wonder, like, wh why are they leaving? What's going on? Why aren't they staying around a little bit? All of it amounting to a very simple business question. Um, can we write the next $10 billion check to really drive this home? Um, and the answer, obviously, is no, we cannot. We can send everybody their money back, but that's the end of that. Any tips for a person working in other industries trying to migrate to the gaming industry? It depends on your skill set. Um, you know, gaming is a tough one to get into, um, but I would play a lot of games. Uh, generally speaking, if you come presumably from a different creative industry, um, you know, you could say, well, if you're a musician, what's out there that you really like? You know, you can make a really good living as a, as a composer for uh, some of these titles if you're good enough, right? And so it's competitive as everything else, but there is, uh, you know, at some point, people don't just relate to their games in a simple playing kind of way. They also want to buy the album that goes with it, right? They'll go see the TV show. And so um, if you have some transferable skill, I would go with that one. And it doesn't necessarily have to be creative in nature. It could also be you're an amazing investor. Uh, you know how to slice and dice you know, some operating budget better than anybody else. There's a lot of studios that can make great games that can't count to save their lives. Right? And they're excellent at, at the creative part, but organizationally disasters. So maybe there's someone out there that you can support in that sense. I'll do one more, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, <laughs> these are all tough. Okay, 
um, what factors are important in making social interaction successful in games? Um, well, I think the easier answer to that one is, um, you know, when we saw, for instance, last year, Crypto and Axie Infinity being the biggest game ever, uh, and then totally cratering because it was effectively a Ponzi scheme. Um, the reason that didn't work, that never held any water, pe people didn't stay and they abandoned it, is because um, it was too much about the, what they call the financialization of fun and not enough about social interaction. So the factors important in making things social, in my mind, and I'm not a designer or creative in that sense, um, but you have to give people a, a, a way to share a way to connect in ways that you haven't seen before. You can do competitive poker games. If I can give the person across the table from me a few chips and our buddies, that's a fun experience. Right? Being able to share with others in ways that may not necessarily make sense in a non-gaming setting, those tend to do really well uh, in games as well. We're out of time. I'm happy to talk to you one-on-one uh, -on -one side stage. Thank you for your time.